New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. on the cusp of a paradigm shift, a radical change in worldview that will thrust art and culture onto center stage. What does that mean? How will the world be different? What is the rising spirit of the times and how is it being expressed in art? Our guest today says, I have this overwhelming image of energy gathering force and taking shape. She likens this force to a wave and says, No one masterminds a wave ordering all the drops of water into line. Many independent forces operate simultaneously, wind, gravity, disturbances of all kinds, and somehow the wave mounts. Today we'll be looking at this mounting force and what's opposing this rolling tide with our guest Arlene Goldbard. Arlene Goldbard is a writer, speaker, consultant, and cultural activist whose focus is the intersection of culture, politics, and spirituality. Her books include Creative Community, The Art of Cultural Development, The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artist, and the Future, and The Wave, which is a work of fiction that helps us imagine changing the story to change our world. Join us for the next hour as we explore a culture of possibility with our guest, Arlene Goldbard. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Arlene, welcome. Thank you, Justine. I'm really excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you. Um, I've, I've so much enjoyed reading your books, and the one book is more factual, and then the other book is a fictional account, and you've kind of written them simultaneously or published them at the same time. They're companion books. Can you say a little bit about that? I really had a lot of thoughts about how to make this story happen. At one point, I thought I'd have three slim books in a slipcase, and then everyone told me that would be impossible to publish at an affordable price, and I really wanted the books to be read. So when I showed the manuscripts to my early readers, people said that there are a number of readers who will be able to grasp a story who might not be interested in the nonfiction approach, and I should make the story available separately. So I did. Uh, you use a couple of terms, and we're talking about, in my intro, the paradigm shift. And we're kind of at that place right now, like two tectonic 
tectonic plates are rubbing up against each other, and you've given them some unique names. We've heard lots of names for this shift that's going on. So your names are Data Stan and Republic of Story. So let's talk about Data Stan first. What is Data Stan? How do you how do you couch that? Well, Data Stan is that place where everything can only be valued with numbers. Things need to be quantified, weighed, and measured. Um, human life is made to replicate the way a machine operates, that everything is made to be valued in a quantified way, and that human beings are asked to conform to the way machines like to operate in the world instead of the other way around, where we end up serving them. We all have to live in data stand a lot of the time, but none of us really enjoy it, and everybody who has the means buys their way out of it somehow. And in in this place, like in education, for example, we might say no child left behind is a, is a good example. Can you talk about how that really buys into data stand? Absolutely. I mean, when no child left behind was passed, someone toted up uh, the references to hard data research in it. I think there were 111 in the one bill that described the program. The idea was that you could measure a child's learning by administering all of these standardized tests. And uh, of course, we know now through Diane Ravitch, many commentators who first loved that stuff have recognized it's not true. You can, when you, when you go for quantification, you always have success in a way because you pick something to measure and then you can measure that. But it doesn't necessarily tell you a deep truth. Having one conversation with a child that about what are you learning? How does it feel to be in school? What would you like to know? Reveals a thousand times more than a million standardized tests. Right, right. And you use another term, corporation nation. So what do you mean by that? Well, I'm really concerned at the extent to which corporate culture and the well-being of corporations is, is now driving the body politic in this country, so that we're all asked to make sacrifices for corporate profits in some way. We're asked to accept environmental despoliation for corporate well-being. Um, there's a feeling that uh, corporations know how to get things done and do things right, despite the vast number of scandals, self-dealing, and malfeasance cases that have been brought against corporations. And government, the public sector, just is bumbling and incompetent and can't do anything. So we're living in a moment in which the default cultural assumptions are corporations should be the model for every human enterprise for what we do. Markets are really important. We really need them. They've been with us since the beginning of time, but they aren't the model for the family, and they aren't the model for love, and they aren't the model for health and well-being, and they aren't the model even for social goods that they've been um, uh, foisted on, like the privatization of prisons in this country. In corporate culture, there is a um, way of saying there's a level in free market it really should be the end-all, be-all for everything. But in reality, it's not a level market. It doesn't, it's not fair to everyone in some ways. No, definitely. I mean, when you look at the figures, then the last year, the rise in corporate profits slowed a little bit. But you dial back two or three years and you see the highest level of corporate profits in history at a time when corporations were choosing to take that money and uh, either distribute it as 
bonuses, golden parachutes, amazingly excessive executive compensation, or in dividends to stockholders, didn't reinvest in rehiring the people who were laid off during the subprime mortgage meltdown, for example, didn't reinvest in infrastructure, and in a lot of cases, uh, exported their jobs overseas. So employment went down as profits went up. Exactly. So it, it didn't really show that, reflect the health of a nation in some ways. The health of the nation didn't seem to be a criterion in those decisions. And also the Supreme Court passed the judgment that corporations had personhood. Yes. And the one thing that occurs to me, I can remember years ago, uh, Bucky Fuller, Bugminster Fuller, talking about, don't worry about your enemies, they'll die off someday. And if you take that idea, a corporation doesn't have the lifespan of a human being, um, that, that they, they can go on forever and ever. And so how, I question that, uh, how they can have a personhood when they, they don't have the mortality rate that possibly that humans do. I yeah, mean, or many of the social responsibilities and, and ties that humans do. There's a great movement called Move to Amend that's looking to amend the Constitution to, to change that uh, interpretation. But beyond the political activism of it, it's the kind of thing that I'm talking about in both these books um, in which common sense, you or I, anybody we meet in line at the market or you know walking along the beach, thinks it's ridiculous that all these rights are given to corporations and their rights are privileged over human rights. None of us think it makes any sense. But within data stand, it seems to be logical and sensible. We're asked, we're persuaded to accept these things as some kind of ultimate truth. So why don't people speak up if you're saying that most people can see the fallacy of it? Why aren't we speaking up? I think there's a lot, we're facing a lot of demoralization right now. One of the things that made me write these books is as I was speaking and doing workshops around the country, I kept hearing from people who were saying they were afraid to get their hopes up. And of course, when people are afraid to get their hopes up, it's because they fear the pain of disappointment. So an ironic thing happens. They pre-disappoint themselves. They declare failure without actually ever getting into the game. And I was seeing this everywhere I went, that, that people were, had silenced themselves because they didn't want to experience a pain that they were actually already administering to themselves. So a lot of the message that I'm carrying is there are many, many more of us than the people who hold the reins in this institutional system that we're pushing against now. And using the rights that we have to speak up and speak out is going to make a big difference. I know one of the points that you make in your book is for, for people not to waste their time, so to speak, trying to educate or turn someone's viewpoint around, but but rather put their energy into collecting allies that that think the same way. And so moving together in that way and in accord, can you say something about that? Yeah, I mean, I do think a lot of the self-silencing comes because people despair of a way in which they could persuade those who are 
clearly their opponents. So, you know, why don't we just declare that battle <laughs> deferred, if not lost, and work on the people who actually have a deep understanding of what needs to happen, but haven't been activated out of that sense of demoralization. That's a very different viewpoint, and I think a, a very powerful one, when you because you're you're reframing it then in in a, in a way rather we where everything the way the media the traditional media or mainstream media everything's a race everything is is polarized us and them sort of con, uh, conversation and what you're saying is something quite different from that. Yeah, I am. I mean, sometimes I speak on uh, campuses about what I sometimes call media poisoning. And there's always some fresh-faced young student who raises their hand in the Q&A and says, how do you keep from becoming cynical and demoralized? And the first time I heard this, I was amazed because, you know, you're 20 years old and you're already cynical and demoralized. I learned to ask the question, how much news are you consuming each day? And what I found is that these young people feel it's their responsibility to be tuned in, not necessarily to mainstream sources always, but to something, to a website, to um, a, a feed of some kind, to television, uh, or, or to, to print media, almost 24-7. And because of that... What's hammering in their heads 24-7 is the same few messages from the center to the margins, declaring a particular reality that isn't really the one that rhymes with our lived experience. And it's like de declare defeat, go home, you know, resistance is hopeless. So when they stop listening to that and they start listening to things like music that moves them and aligns their spirit with what they want to do, the sense of possibility changes they feel able to go forward. I'm here with Arlene Golbard. She's the author of The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artist, and the Future, and the fictional account The Wave. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Arlene Golbard, author of The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artist, and the Future, as well as the fictional book, The Wave. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, arlenegolbard.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Arlene, we were just talking about music, and in, in the traditional or in the present culture, most people look at music as entertainment, 
But you're looking at it somewhat differently. So speak about that, if you would, please. Music moves me greatly. It's, it's, uh, I have a soundtrack in my life. And I began at a certain point to wonder why that was and to notice that music is an art form that engages all four aspects of the human subject at once. So when music is playing or when we're playing music, there's a physical dimension. We feel it in our bodies. We're processing it by impulses coming in through the ears and being converted in our brains to the sound of music. We want to move our bodies. We want to tap our feet. It excites our emotions, often in a way that has nothing to do with the words, just, just the sounds. It makes us think about something. And when all of the, those three dimensions are lined up at once, it's a spiritual experience, a sense of the ineffable, of something that can't be named, can't be Uh, totally encapsulated. So it's a really powerful modality. And in the culture of possibility, I talk a lot about how it's being used in medical uh, research to heal people who have neurological deficits, like uh, stroke patients who can't speak or autistic children who can't speak. There's great research about how they've learned to regain the power of speech through singing, for example. But I've also been thinking a lot about, in, in The Wave, my, my novel, thinking a lot about how people are using music these days. Because as I travel around the country, everyone's plugged into their iPods. And you hear a lot of poo-pooing about that, right? What is with people? I have a character in The Wave who uh, has uh, experienced a big loss in his life. And he's finding himself needing to walk the streets day after day after day listening to music that the person he lost loves and that evokes the past for him. One day he sits on a park bench. Uh, A much older man is sitting next to him, and he complains, what's wrong with people that look like lamps? They're going around with these wires dangling out of their ears. And my character has an epiphany. He realizes that these people are self-administering music as medication so that they're inspiriting themselves through the playlists that they create and the music they listen to, to face the challenges of the day and to be able to bring themselves fully to whatever they encounter. Well, I can remember when my partner, Michael Toms, died. I was so busy right after his death. I was just, I I never got into my grief, at least not right away. And then um, one of my coworkers sent me a piece of music and and I just kind of hit the my computer button and listened to this wonderful old song that meant a lot to me that I hadn't heard in years, a Buffy St. Marie song called Moonshot. Uh. And I'm just sitting there just crying at my computer, and it felt so good to be so fully present then and triggered by the music to really feel my grief. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was skating up above it, and and that was a wonderful moment that music elicited. Absolutely. I spoke a little earlier about the two realms, contrasting realms, data stand where everything that counts can be counted, and the Republic of Stories, the place where everything has its story, and where music, for example, is given its true value, given this power that we know in our own bodies, minds, and experiences it has, but which is ignored in the other realm. And in the, this Republic of Story, you, you really talk about artists as an indicator species. What yes. does that mean? Well, you know, in, in environmental studies, 
there are certain species of, of animals or organisms that are indicators of health. So like clams and oysters are, are biomonitors for the oceans. If they're dying off, you know something's wrong. What I posit in both these books is that artists are an indicator species for social well-being, for the health of the body politic, and how they're treated in terms of policy, support, how they're regarded in the larger society, uh, the respect their work is given, whether their creations, like music we were just talking about, is given its full value. When artists are shunted off to the side, when their work is considered negligible, then we're seeing that the body politic is not in good health, that we're not in a time of high social well-being. I'd love for you to describe, Arlene, the the boutique, the sensory boutique called Dr. Feel Goods. And it just was, I, I want this right now. I want this in my life. So please describe what you've visioned there. Absolutely. I'd love to go there too. Uh, my same character who had that epiphany about how people were using mu- music as self-medication realized that this was true in other realms too, that we could use visual images, that sometimes if you're in a certain mood and you need a certain kind of mental stimulation, someone who understands film could prescribe a film for you or prescribe particular tastes. So he created something that in my mind kind of looks like an Apple store, but instead of geniuses, we have virtuosos. And they're very familiar with all the... uh, you know, there, there are novels that are available that are organized by the desires or the feelings that they're meant to evoke. They're familiar with music. They're familiar with the history of visual art. And you come in and you see your personal virtuoso and you say, I have a job interview tomorrow and I'm really anxious about it. And based on who you are and how you receive information best, that person prescribes for you something to watch or listen to or taste or move or experience that helps you. Isn't that wonderful? So, and it's not like taking a, a Prozac or something. It's, it's, it's involving the entire body, the seeing something, hearing something, smelling something, and this person gets to know you maybe through time. Uh, it's different from therapy. Can it you is. describe that uh, that difference? Well, like my character uh, Rebecca, who's the main character, a journalist, is. We first encounter her in 2023, and she's doing a story on this gathering social phenomenon that, that I've been describing in which business, education, healing, all social sectors are being permeated by the methods and tools of art, that we're understanding this power, and that's becoming embedded in everything that we do. She goes there for the first time. She's a, a, in college, and she has a friend from home, from high school, that she was really close to, and they're growing apart, and she feels awkward, and she doesn't know how to relate to that person. And she has her first session with a virtuoso, and she brings this up as a small problem that she thinks will be manageable. She's very skeptical about the whole enterprise. And the virtuoso asked her if she's ever heard Leonard Cohn. And of course, in 2023, she said, oh, my mother used to love him because (laughs) (laughs) he's he's very robust, but I don't know if he's going to last another 10 years, but may, may it be so, may he. And she prescribes a couple of songs about loss from the wonderful album, 10 New Songs, Alexandra Leaving, Love Itself, a couple of others. And um, she tells her to go home, put this music on, 
Be in a darkened room. Just listen. Don't do anything else while you're hearing it. Don't even, you don't even have to think about this friend. Just let it wash over you and let it enter you. And she has an, a, a, she gains almost a somatic understanding of how life is, comes and goes. Love is here, love is gone. Friends are here, friends are gone. Life goes on from listening to this music. So the, st- the internal static she was feeling is released. And, and there's and an acceptance. And when she sees the friend again, she recognizes the friend is getting this too. She doesn't have to really agonize about it. She doesn't have to process with the friend about what's going on with us. It's just like, oh, an acceptance, some deep acceptance. So, so talk about why you call it a wave. But precisely because of what you said when we started the interview, because I love the image of a wave as a phenomenon, uh, a description of social change in that no one is masterminding it. No one is directing it. It's not being organized from a central place. But certain things are happening at the same time in such a way to line up into a coherent shape of change. So, you know, go back three or four years to um, the film Avatar. Do you remember that? I do. Remember how much people were talking about globalization and the environment as a result of seeing Avatar? We're living in a time in which the stories that we tell that are codified in the form of a film, a television program, something you read, a piece of music, a song, the stories that we tell are becoming the containers, the crucibles in which we work out who we are as a people, what we stand for, how we want our future to be. And when I saw how much more discussion that film was triggering than all the white papers that were being issued by all the environmental organizations. I got, the world is lining up in this way. We are understanding that our stories are what shape us, how we shape our stories shapes our lives, and nobody's controlling that. We're just all getting it at the same time. Another aspect of that movie, Arlene, was the phrase... I see you. And that was a very, very powerful phrase. And that really goes, dovetails with your idea of a a republic of story. Because if we truly see each other, we're seeing each other in our, in toto, in our, our whole story. That's true. And there's a deep truth about story, which is that until our own stories have been told, with completeness and received with dignity and understanding. We can't really be present to other people's stories. So, you know, we're living in a, a moment now in which the official story is a competition of, of, of suffering, right? You hear about somebody else's uh, difficulties in life and you think, you think you have it difficult, you should hear my story. The alternative in the Republic of Stories is I do hear your story. And when you've been heard, you are calmed, received, dignified in a way that enables you to hear my story, and then we really do see each other and we're able to connect, not objectify each other. And one of your uh, characters in your novel is someone who works in a hospital setting with people who are suffering from some sort of disease. 
and she gets she elicits stories from these people. You know, she's not the, putting the IV into someone or giving a pill, but she's doing it through stories. That's right. She's a member of the Storyteller Corps at Bellevue Hospital in New York, which all by itself is an amazing possibility. And what they have come to understand is that the usual hospital experience where people are stressed and distressed already, they come in, they're treated like numbers, despite the good intentions often of medical professionals, it's just a system that prizes a certain kind of uniformity and efficiency. We're going to talk more about that new way of being in a hospital setting in just one moment. I'm here with Arlene Goldbard. She's the author of the novel The Wave and also the book The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artist, and the Future. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Arlene Goldbard, and she's the author of the novel The Wave, and also The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artist, and the Future. And we're talking about a possible future in medicine and a hospital scene where there's someone who's eliciting a story from someone who's a patient in a hospital. Mm-hmm. So in the vision I have, there's a storyteller core that supplements the intake process in a hospital or clinic. So instead of being greeted by somebody with a clipboard who needs all your numbers, you're greeted by someone whose job it is to, to listen to you and to hear you deeply. And the goal of that person, uh, the person's dialogue with you, is to elicit who you are, to understand the context for and the roots of whatever it is that ails you so that they can confer with the medical professionals and figure out what the best modalities are to treat you. And some of those modalities are going to be drugs, surgery, other procedures. But along with those, there's going to be a musician who helps you develop a playlist that puts you in the mental space that you need to be to align with your healing. Or you're going to be working with a visual art therapist who helps you discover the imagery. Or you're just going to tell the story of your family heritage in a way that helps uh, the people who are helping to heal you spot risk factors, Sources of resilience, things that brought your ancestors forward from the past into the future that you can tap into to bring yourself to health. A couple of uh, examples that you've given in in your books that I looked up online and that actually happened, where where artists, where there there really are glimmers of this actually manifesting now in this day and time. And one of them is a documentary film that's just been released called Trash Dance. Can you say something about how that fits into this? 
Absolutely. Future. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that film. It's um, by a filmmaker in Austin called Andrew Garrison, and it takes the year-long residency of a choreographer called Allison or with the Solid Waste Management uh, uh, of Austin, the, the city agency that, that picks up the trash. Um, she worked with sanitation workers over the course of a year to develop a dance that was based on the music um, and the movement and the meaning of the work that they do. And it was a really interesting challenge because, as one of the characters in the film says, we're not just these people who haul away what you don't want. And we, some don't, grace. we don't see these people. I mean, we just yeah. we don't notice them. And this is doing, doing something else here. Yeah, this is saying your story counts too, that everybody is part of our community and that there's something worth learning from everyone who's part of our community and that there's beauty and grace in everything. It's, I can hardly wait to see it. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. And then there's another, um, we talk about graffiti in this culture, maybe like poo-pooing it or some people look down on it. But that's a tremendous art form. We don't talk about billboards that that uh, are touting buy this or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. doing commodities, you know. We don't think of that as something negative, and yet we... All these, this art form graffiti, we look at, many of us look at as something very negative. So can you say something about that, please? Well, you put your finger on a really interesting point, I think, because what we find is that when people have the opportunity to talk about graffiti, and I'm distinguishing the kind of graffiti where you write your name on a building from an actual work of art that's created with spray cans on a wall that where permission has been granted to do it and so forth. Um, and people feel uh, that this disrupts the environment somehow, that I wasn't asked to, if it was okay to put this here and now I have to look at it. And often, as you point out, they're completely blind to what else is in the environment, which is often a lot of images and words and appeals to buy something, to feel deficient in some way, to feel less than, and to assuage that feeling with a purchase. So I'm interested in taking the awareness that is triggered when something unusual happens in an environment, like a graffiti mural, and extending that to the whole landscape of the city, the whole landscape of our experience, so that we're wide awake and paying attention to the other people whose commercial space is also impinging on our on our experience of the city. Exactly. And so in one of my pet peeves, which has to do with the way we are being trained to be automated. And it's, it's a telephone. And it's when we dial a telephone and then we go through all those numbers. And I liken this to a lot of people don't know what, we, what is called the shifting baseline. They, they've grown up in this automated telephone system where... Uh, service, it, you can't get to an individual to, to get some sort of service from a corporation or from an entity. And I, I, when I grew up, I could, uh, you pick up the phone and you actually, there was an operator and she would say, number please. I can remember that. I was very young at the time, but I can remember that. That was the baseline. 
And now you go through number after number after number, and finally you give up in frustration, or you might get someone, uh, but it takes, you know, a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So say something about that, if you would, please. Well, I think you're correct that it is training. It's training not to value our own time, to believe that we're there to serve those systems instead of those systems serving us, and to kind of uh, resign into a sort of demoralization where you figure often it's not worth interfacing with the system to try and get done what I need to get done. I'll just do what they want me to do. Now, I don't like the passivity that this inculcates. But, you know, I don't know if you watch television, but I'm interested that lately I've seen many commercials for a credit card company that's touting the fact that they have real human beings on the line when you call customer service. And I think some of these things are turning around because while it's efficient in some sense for the corporation, it drives people away in the way that they want People dislike the experience so much that I don't think they're going to stand for it forever. And there's someone might say, oh, well, it would cost too much to have a real live person for customer service, or it would cost too much to teach towards an individual child's uh, talents. It would cost too much. And yet you point out in your books that we spend a lot of money on things that are very destructive, such as the prison system, you know, or, or you know, as a private entity, a profit-making entity, or the um, uh, war in itself. And, and we spend trillions of dollars. I often cite the statistic that we are spending more than two annual National Endowment for the Arts budget a day, seven days a week, on war in this country. So when people say they can't afford things, what do they mean, actually? They don't mean they can't afford it. They don't mean the money's not there. They mean that they're privileging and prizing punishment over our creativity, punishment over our connection, punishment over nourishing our resilience. I don't want to have that be my legacy as an American. I don't want it to be that the thing that we valued most was punishing people abroad who were doing things we didn't like or people in this country who are now locking up at a rate that beggars the rate for any other nation on the planet. What is the importance of visioning it a different way? I think it's essential. I mean, until we have a different story to try to discuss, to cultivate, to flesh out with ourselves. All we can feel is that we don't want something. We don't really have anything to go toward. And in the end, that negative orientation, I don't like this, but there's nothing I can do about it, doesn't really get us anywhere. So I think that it's essential to develop a new story. And I say over and over again in the book, the way, the way we shape our stories shapes our lives. We see it, you know, on the individual level. One, one person has an illness and their story is, I'm being punished for crimes I don't know and why is this happening to me? Everything happens to me. Another person with the same illness sees uh, the pain and difficulty of it but also experiences it as an opportunity to refocus on what's most important and essential in their lives. 
Neither thing determines what the future will be for either individual, but one story is ceaseless suffering and the other story is an opportunity for growth along with whatever pain they have to endure. This is true on the macro level as well as the individual one. You mention in your book uh, uh, another book that I, I read with um, great interest. It was Catherine Boo's uh, story of being part of uh, research into a slum outside of Mumbai in India and following the lives of different people. In fact, I thought it was a work of um, fiction when I read it. And then when I researched it afterwards and looked up who she was, it wasn't fiction at all. It actually happened that she really did embed herself in this for three years. And you mentioned that she was um, on the uh, Colbert uh, report, and uh, she he asked her, well, now that you're back in the, um, the United States, what are you seeing? Do you remember saying something about that? Yeah, yeah. She said, um, I look at poverty in this country, and I think if we were really serious about fixing it, we could do it in about half a second. Because in comparison to the poverty that she saw and these people who actually live on the grounds of the airport in Mumbai, whose whole lives is scavenging the detritus of the airport in Mumbai, poverty in this country is a simple question of paying attention to human suffering and making a few small adjustments to alleviate it. And when I used that story in my book, I used it to, to make what I think is a really important point, which is... Very often, the solutions to the problems that seem insoluble in data stand are quite simple. You just have to do something a little bit different. But sometimes the hubris of modern life is such that we reject the simple solution because we think our problems are so complex, they're so arcane, they're so challenging. It has to be some really huge, uh, complicated new system that requires the overhaul of everything, and we can't do that, so there's no way to fix this problem. So going back to your idea of the wave and the little drops of water that that coalesce to make the wave, make this movement. So you're saying that we can move towards that and not to, not to get depressed about the idea that, oh, it doesn't look like we're making any strides. Can, can you give some examples of things that are working, that are going towards this new wave? Mm -hmm. Well, for example, I, I talk a lot about... Uh, different commercial enterprises in the way, which is kind of interesting for me because I live my life as an artist and an activist and uh, markets and businesses haven't been too much of a focus for me. But one thing I'm seeing is that there's the ability to experiment and innovate in the commercial sector with a little bit less bureaucracy often than is present in, in the public sector. We'll talk about that in just one moment. I'm here with Arlene Goldbard. She's the author of the novel The Wave and also the book the Culture of Possibility, Art, Artist, and the Future. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Arlene Goldbard, and she's the author of the novel The Wave and also the book The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artists, and the Future. And we're talking about how the private sector, Arlene, has a little bit more freedom of movement. Was that what you were about to say? Or to- Sometimes it's true that there's more freedom to experiment. For example, if you look at, at Silicon Valley, there's a lot of venture capital that can be invested on a pretty small scale f- for markets, although it might translate into a big grant if you were measuring it from government perspective. And so there's a willingness to take risks sometimes and and fail uh, several times so that you can succeed once. And some of the new successes have to do with bringing storytelling or other artistic modes into the business environment. So what I'm talking about quite a bit in both the culture of possibility and the wave is the the reactivation of all four dimensions of the human subject in these realms. How do we bring the physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual into the boardroom? I ask, for example, what's the worst thing you can do in a boardroom? And every woman knows the answer, cry, right? If you cry, the the whole universe melts down and, and you're gone. So I'm positing a boardroom that changes into an arts workshop where theater workers who know how to do form theater, people who can work with individuals to create new music, to create visual depictions, to use movement for product development, um, that this arts-based business learning actually exists to quite an extent right now in this country and around the world. And I'm positing a moment in which it becomes the dominant mode of planning and interaction in business environments. And so instead of the way we have it now, which is you have to leave an awful lot of yourself at home when you go to work or school. We can all bring the whole person into those environments and they will be made more humane, colorful, dynamic, and successful as a result. So Arlene, you're saying that arts-based business learning is taking place right now, that that there are glimmers of this that are popping up and, and being successful. That's right. If you Google that phrase, arts-based business learning, you're going to find special issues of business journals devoted to this. Um, one of the, it's, it's not only business, one of the most interesting studies that I've seen had to do with the training of medical students. There was a study done at Yale that showed that after having one art history course, the diagnostic skills of medical students at Yale improved by 25%, which is uh, remarkable, but also replicable because the thing that leads to diagnostic mistakes in medicine is what they call confirmation bias. You have a hunch of what something is and you look for the evidence to confirm that. Looking at art, they learn to look without preconception, to just see what was there. And developing those muscles made them better diagnosticians. That's amazing. So you, you, when going to your doctor, you might want to ask, um, have you ever took, taken an, an, a course in art? That's right. That's <laughs> that right. might be a good criteria to, to know you're going to have a better diagnosis or more uh, thorough diagnosis. Um, what are other glimmers that are going on in our culture that you see that is moving us in this wave or this republic of story? Mm-hmm. Well, I... 
I think that some of the large social movements that we've seen in the last few years are really significantly infused by and shaped by culture. So if you look at the Occupy movement, if you look at the Arab Spring, you see that the, the people who were behind those movements had to have the capacity. I mean, the Occupy people kept saying, um, there is another world, right? They had to have the capacity to envisage an alternative story to the given story and to bring people together around saying what that should be. And the values that form the through line in all of these social movements, whether it's here or abroad, is actually paying attention to individual story, um, recognizing that everybody has an equal space in making the future together, uh, using the means of culture, the imagery, the um, enactments, the, uh, the music, to bring people together in public settings, and using new media, new forms of communication to spread that in a democratic way. You, you were pointing out, at least in, in one of your books, um, like let's suppose that we're walking down the street and what we see now, we might see a plaque on the side of a building that will say such and such historical event took place here and, you know, and it'll give the date. But you're saying that one could then, talking about storytelling, kind of plug into their phone or, or some other mode that they're carrying with them. They could tap into hearing in in full in the fullness with music and maybe you know theater arts or whatever hearing mm -hmm. what took place there that would be a very different experience yeah and seeing too i mean since a wave takes place in both 2023 and 2033 new technologies are evolving and one of the ways that people think things are going is to augmented reality glasses where you can see a projection on your own personal vision screen. So imagine, I called it a whisper network. Imagine that you were walking around the streets of your city and you could stop at different points, tap into the whisper network and hear and sometimes see archival images from first-person tales of who used to live here, who made this place, um, how, they, how their stories, their culture shaped the character, the texture of life in that particular precinct. And... Uh, that the aggregate of that, all those stories together, make a big statement, which is that it takes all of us to make our society. It takes all of us to make this world. It's not just like the great man theory of history says, a few important people moving money in military and mountains. Right. That, uh, so we get the diversity of who we are. And we've noticed in nature that diversity, to maintain a diverse biology uh, or environment is a healthier environment. You're right. And I, I, I think that's a really good analogy. Uh, biodiversity, cultural diversity, absolutely required. You have to see the diversity of cultures as a positive social value, not a problem as so many commentators see it today. You know, I grew up partially in the South and w growing up, uh, there was a lot of storytelling still going on there, and a lot of uh, lineage story, like, oh, well, you're related to so-and-so, and your great-uncle did so-and-so, and a lot of those stories would take place, because at that at the time when I grew up, that 
society was not that mobile. They, they were really rooted in that place. But now we are quite mobile. We've, we, we move from place to place. Many of us have, are not living in the same house that we grew up in, probably most of us. So there's something here that that kind of storytelling roots us in some way. Absolutely. I'm, I'm thinking of my friend Dudley Cock, as you say that. He's the artistic director of Roadside Theater, which is in Appalachia. It's a storytelling-based theater, and they've been going for way more than, than, than 30 years. He said to me that he thinks storytelling is our selective uh, advantage, our survival trait as a species. And a number of cultural anthropologists agree with this, too, that our ability to depict danger, opportunity, what connects us, what separates us in a vivid way— enabled us to survive through the Pleistocene era, through every subsequent era of human history. And right now, it's enabling us to balance out the, um, the alienation, the deracination, the um, separation that's an artifact of modern commercial life. Right. I'm also thinking, as, as children, many of us, some of the most delightful memories we might have is when we were play acting, we were we were doing mini theater, mm-hmm. and so theater is another integral part of your vision of the future. Absolutely, and forum theater, which is one of the modes that Augusto Boal, great Brazilian theater maker, created, is a great example. In forum theater, and now he's he's a real person. I mean, that's he's not, a real person. Yeah, uh-huh. He's he, he, he's he's not with us any longer, but he was very real while he was alive. And his ideas were influenced also by Paulo Freire, the Brazilian educator. But in forum theater, you you have a, a skit that's worked out around a problem or an opportunity and performed for a group of people who are considered spectators, a hybrid of spectator and actor, who can come up on stage and replace the protagonist or replace someone else in the scene and try out an alternative mode of resolving the problem or addressing the situation. Boal was uh, elected to the municipal legislature of Rio during his lifetime, and he used this in the public square. He called the legislative theater to work out solutions to social problems. Well, that's so different than in public forums where we are today. We get we we have an issue. Different people line up at the microphone, and they have a limit of two minutes to to say their piece. And often the public uh, officials aren't even listening. And that's the way it's set up as, okay, well, everybody has their piece to say. And this other kind of legislative theater is very different. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's one of the immediate practical steps that we could take is to take the money that's allocated in every municipality, state government, federal government agency for public hearings that aren't real, like you just described, for information leaflets that no one reads, for PSAs that everybody fast-forwards through, and redeploy that money to hire artists to do this work. May it be so. Well, people are going to have to pick up these books and get get a lot of stimulation, a lot of ideas, and to move forward in a wave of the Republic of Story. Thank you so much, Arlene, for being with us today. And thank you for having me. It's been great. It's been my pleasure as well. I've been speaking with Arlene Goldbard, and she's the author of the novel The Wave and also the book The Culture 
of Possibility Art, Artist, and the Future. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, ArleneGoldbard.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3473. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.